Hello everyone, welcome back to Through the Eyes of a Therapist, the podcast that's all about mental health. Today we discuss special issues like treating children with ADHD with stimulant medication, as well as his new practice called Borderland Health. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this re-recorded version of my interview with family psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner Jorge Medina. at a cafe outside in El Paso. We decided to meet in person because the audio over the phone was not as clear. So I'm re-interviewing Jorge Medina, family psychiatric, no, yes. psychiatric nurse practitioner, no, family? Family psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Okay, there you go. Say I, it 10 times fast. I know, it's really difficult to remember because I'm just used to like psychiatric nurse practitioner. practitioner. Yeah. So every time you sign your name, you have to write all those letters after it? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for the interview, I want to be able to recap kind of what we had talked about before. And if you can just go ahead and explain um, what you do, who you are, where you're from, yeah. so people can get to know you. Sure. Um, I'm a family psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I've been in mental health for probably close to 15 years now and practicing for going on two. Um, I currently work at uh, through Emergence Health Network in a contract with the corrections facilities here in town. And uh, I see 20 to 25 inmates per day, um, all adult, of course. And um, so I've been seeing that for the last year. And I used to work at Amanecer Health Clinic or Services, seeing children and adolescent population and medication management. So you've seen children, adolescents, and adults. Yes. And then also adults in the jail. Yes. Okay. Yes. What's the youngest person you've ever treated? Um, the youngest one would be five. Okay. Five, and, and really at five you can't do much with medications, but a lot of it is behavioral and it is probably environmental influenced. So yeah. it's rare, but... Typically six and above is when we can start prescribing medications for ADHD or I try not to do a lot of medications, but sometimes it's it's very evident that the patient will benefit from medication. That they need it. That they need it. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people don't understand it. They think, well, you're just medicating to medicate, and, and that's not true. I, I think, at least the way I practice, I try to do the least invasive before I do the most, and, and often the... The case presents that it's too severe or too, too severe. I have to intervene almost immediately. So, And then the last thing I want to do is inpatient. I don't want ever anybody, especially a child or an adolescent, to end up at UBH. Or, mm -hmm. Not that those places are, are bad, but a lot of times it's, it's something we can address in the outpatient setting before they have to go inpatient. Yeah, uh, it's another level of care. Yeah. So having to refer somebody to a hospital yes. is is like the last resort kind of thing? Or? Yeah, I kind of, I, I usually tell the parents, if you had a broken bone and needed surgery, you wouldn't go to your outpatient doctor or family doctor to treat that. We'd have to go to surgery in the hospital, stabilize that, and then they can come back and continue the care. So depending on how severe and ill they are, if they're acutely ill, mm -hmm. then I would, I would hospitalize them to stabilize them quicker, much more quicker than I would and keep them safe because somebody has an eye on him 24-7. So I see it more of a safety 
uh, aspect. If I can try to manage it from outpatient settings, setting them every week, then I'll do it. But typically, it's it's in, you know inpatient if if we can't. Yeah, if there's no other intervention that's appropriate, I guess. Correct. That's interesting. I didn't ask you this question the last time, but um, it's because at the center I work at, we practice parent-child interaction therapy, and that's for kids age two to seven that have behavioral problems. And so the, the intervention is really heavily focused on parents. And so we're constantly coaching yes. parents on like how to have stability in the home and structure sure. and predictability. And there have been maybe a couple of cases that it seems like the child has ADHD mm -hmm. or could be diagnosed mm -hmm. with a very early like ODD or something sure. like that. But um, there has only been a couple of cases where we really have had to send them for medication because we really try to do the conservative thing sure. first, right? Yeah, like you really said. Really, you should with children and adolescents, right? We really want to do that. The earlier we can intervene, the, fat, the, the more success we can have right. without medication. And it is the parent. It is a lot of, I believe, a lot of the parent relationship, maybe single moms or single dads, frustrated, um, dealing with a kid that may be having, you know, they're, they're out of hand or aggressive or whatnot. So it is coming from, from a lot of that. So I, I agree with you. That's good. Yeah, the environmental factors. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your new practice and what that's going to look like? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, first let me tell you, I, a lot of people say, well, you're almost a doctor or you're just like a psychiatrist. We do a lot of the same things, but um, I would never consider myself or, or put myself at a level of a psychiatrist. They certainly had a lot more training than I did. Um, they're more of a, we do the same things, but we come from a different perspective. Um, we see the patient through different lenses, but we our goal ultimately is the patient. Um, being well, um, so I'm not like a psychiatrist, but in a sense that we can do the medication management, we can do, we can even do some therapy. You don't find psychiatrists that will, they're trained in psychotherapy, but they won't implement it or they won't use it. Mostly it's medication management. So I, I can do both and I do do some brief intervention as I am with psychotherapy when I meet with the patient. So mm -hmm. motivational interviewing, that kind of stuff, patient-centered uh, care. It's kind of where I come from, so it's a little different, but but we do a lot of the same things. As far as my practice, I'm just getting it off the ground, um, Borderland Health Services, and I'm looking to have an all-inclusive, one-stop shop, so to speak, where you can get your medical care and your psychiatric care as an outpatient setting, uh, along with, hopefully, therapy in the same office, same building. Mm -hmm. And I think that just makes it more convenient for not only the parent, the child, you know, the limit the school, you know, having to take them out of school so much for different provider visits um, and also the continuity of care where you're able to see where they're at because if, you know, as you know, psychiatric care influences or impacts your medical care, your mental, your medical health and vice versa. So it's, it's, if we could all have it in the same building, it, it I think would benefit the patient most as opposed to I'm having to call their pediatrician or I have to call their family doctor and try to get information that way, that could delay the care. And so this way it's all in-house and it's, we can make quicker decisions, um, especially when it comes to medications, especially if they're on other medications, if they're on other treatments, it's important for us to know those things. And a lot of people don't realize that. I may put you on a medication that your pediatrician or your family practitioner doesn't 
you don't they don't find out or they don't know and it could impact you know it could have serious effects on either one so it's important that yeah. we have that yeah absolutely i can't count how many times i've tried as a therapist to contact a physician or a psychiatrist and it's really really hard to get yes. a hold of them and so if I were in the same building as that person, I'd be able to staff cases with sure. them and talk about the patient or That's the right. client. Um, things would be much easier. And you're right about that medication thing, um, like interactions, I yeah. guess, like mm -hmm. drug interactions. So you would have everything in one file or in one place. Right. And it would be safer for yeah. the patient. It makes so much sense. You know, and, really and I'm idea. sure it's, I'm not the first one to do it, but I think here in town, uh, I'll be one of the few to hopefully get that off the ground and and start that kind of uh, model because you know the model now is going to to not be in the hospital it's to be treated as an outpatient and efficiently and, and you know yeah. with with appropriate with appropriate care so yeah and having you know preventive care is important yes. I know that um, you've talked about how you work with people who are in jail mm -hmm. and my theory was that if somebody's in jail most likely they're going to have some sort of history of trauma or some sort of history of mental illness with themselves or with their family that just never was treated so then that's how they kind of dysregulated and couldn't control themselves and maybe committed a crime right you're absolutely right else. i mean as as i see the patient when they come in a lot of them have not had health, uh, mental health care for some time or they only receive it while they're incarcerated um, or probably I can this is just kind of my own experience five out of ten inmates that I see on a daily day basis has some sort of abuse from childhood whether it's physical emotional or sexual a lot of it yeah. um, and it impacts them they don't realize that it, it they don't think about it anymore but you know your heart never forgets and so anything that makes your heart remember that you're going to physically manifest it in anxiety and hypervigilance and uh, nightmares um, a lot of I see a lot of people that stare out and blank out and dissociate because they're just daydreaming about trying to connect the memories and so trauma definitely impacts their their, their overall well-being and then some people are homeless they can't afford treatment they go it's a it's a continuous cycle of continued abuse and continued incarcerations because they don't stabilize or we don't get them stable long enough when they're outside uh, as opposed to when they're incarcerated so yeah. it's a, it, you're right it's actually that's that's probably what I see a lot of is p folks that, that have trauma I can imagine it's also cyclical so like mm -hmm. let's say somebody who is homeless or is below the poverty line and they have a history of trauma and then they offend they mm -hmm. get caught they get sent to jail or they get incarcerated right. they get treatment but then when they're released I mean, I'm sure you do just discharge planning and yes. plan for continuity of yeah. care, but I wonder how many fall through the cracks either because they don't follow through right. or they don't have access or they don't have and insurance. So, or yeah, and being with Emergence Health Network, we connect them. We, we provide those discharge planning uh, and follow-up appointments and even 10 days worth of medications when they get discharged just to make that appointment. Mm -hmm. But I probably find that 70% of the time they, they don't follow through. Or they fall through the cracks or emergence is so overwhelmed with cases with patients that they have appointments till three months from now mm -hmm. two months from now and they can't get it within that 10 day and so yeah. the patient then says i give up yeah there's and, definitely a shortage yeah yeah 
of providers. Absolutely. Because even with our center, we do have one psychiatrist that comes and works with us one day out of the week, and her wait list is until like July or August Amazing. or something. Yeah, and sometimes it's been longer than that. So yeah, and um, so we do have a big shortage, especially here in this county, mm -hmm. uh, for cert for certain in the country. But here, I can probably tell you, there's 30 um, psychiatrists specializing in mental health, and probably you know some of those are just only in academia. Some aren't even taking new patients, and then probably I can count 18 nurse practitioners um, in town. Mm -hmm. who have to have those supervisors, physicians, and probably half of those can see children and adolescent, and even half of those don't choose to see children and adolescent just because oh. of the, um, you know, the, what do you call it, the, not the dangers, but like the liability, liability? Yeah. of seeing somebody at, at that such young age and prescribing medication. So um, for me, it hasn't been an issue. I really do think I'm more geared to the children and adolescent. I certainly will see and will see in our practice adults and geriatrics, you know, um, disorders. But uh, I think the main focus right now is with children and adolescents. Yeah, it's it's totally needed. I mean, there are more adult psychiatrists in the city, yeah. you're right. Because um, we have a, a referral checklist mm -hmm. so, so that... Um, when somebody needs psychiatric care, if it's a child, we give them a list, but some of the people they call, they either their wait patients. list is yeah. like five months, yeah. or um, they only see adults, or it says like they're a family uh, practitioner, right? But they choose not to see adolescents right. or children. Right. And we're like, what the mm -hmm. heck? So you could choose to not see adolescents and children, yes. but you do see them. Yes, um, one of the few here in town that will, will prescribe and to see them. Because I'm, I'm a big believer of preventative. I'm a big believer that the younger we get them, the, you know, the brain isn't fully formed, and they may not have to be on medications the rest of their lives. But at least if we intervene fast enough, then, then the mind doesn't have to get stuck in these patterns, in these negative patterns, and and so we can help them. At least I can. The way I've practiced, I can see that. Yeah, that's true. You know what's interesting is that like when I. When I went to graduate school and all that stuff, and I was doing internships, I saw college-age kids and adults, mostly, yeah. for my internships. And I was like, I'm never going to work with kids. It must be so uh -huh. hard, right? And then I got hired at the shelter where we mm -hmm. worked together for a little while. And then I was like, oh, my God, I love kids and adolescents. Yeah. And now where I work, it's mostly children. I'd say, like, 90% of my right? caseload is children two and a half to like 17 years old and they heal so much more quickly yes it's they're very resilient funny they're very the children resilient. and adolescents are very resilient yeah um if we can get the parent on board it's even it's even, even better. better yeah yeah but it's as you're as you see the culture here limits us sometimes because i believe the hispanic culture either you know tries to not recognize it or, or delays in accepting that that mental illness is a true illness and the way I see it it's a medical illness like anything else like diabetes like high blood pressure like any other kind of medical illness you can think of it's no separate and now the DSM-5 has said that that's true that's why they got rid of the axes and no longer subcategorize your medical condition separate from your psychiatric because it's all one yeah. and that's part of the reason they did that uh, I also liken mental health to uh, for example diabetes if you have diabetes who else has to be diabetic in your family? Well, everybody else has to support you, and in mental health, you need the support. You also need medications, 
And so in diabetes, we use medications, a certain standard of medications. And so in depression, for example, we'll use a certain standard of medications before we go to something higher because eventually the diabetic will need insulin. And so eventually the mental health patient will need something more, um, more appropriate. The diabetic will have a crisis every once in a while and have to go to the hospital and get treated for the crisis and stabilize the diabetes so they can go back on their medications. Well, sometimes psychiatric patients will have to have a crisis or will go through a crisis and then have to have appropriate higher care. You also have to have the family engaged. Mm-hmm. I can't be eating pizza and my son has diabetes and has to eat salad in front of me. So that education with the support of everybody else around you quote unquote becoming diabetic because you, you, you've got to you know help them support them mentally ill patients also have to have that support education nutrition nutrition is very important in diabetes and so it is in mental health True. Um, yeah. and then community support you go around any clinic you go around any hospital you go to health fairs and they're promoting diabetic testing supplies they're checking your sugars your cholesterols but nobody's screening for mental health so we still have lacked that community part. Right. Uh, we have NAMI. Uh, but you need all those things in place in order for a patient to manage their diabetes well. And it's the same for mental health. Yeah. Um, and, but we lack that. We lack that, that aspect of it or that mentality that it is just like anything else. And with diabetes, of course, you can't reverse it. It's mm-hmm. forever. And the eventuality is that these folks, if, even if they manage it well, their pancreas will no longer work. Eventually, they'll be on insulin, and they may suffer other comorbidities like amputations or uh, vision loss, uh, heart attacks. And so the, psych- the schizophrenic or the severely mentally ill, like schizophrenics and bipolar, uh, eventually, we're never going to fix it. We're only going to manage it. And eventually, the eventuality is that um, their lives, their outcomes, their lives are not they're a little shorter because of, of just like a diabetic because of their illness. Complications. And, yeah, and stuff. complications. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a really nice, um, I guess, parallel that you pointed out mm-hmm. um, that I think a lot of people don't notice or talk about, right. and how any other mental illness or disorder really is like an invisible illness. Yes. Um, you may not be able to see it or have to, you know have some pump attached to you or something but yeah that's that's the thing you know i can't go and send you to get a blood draw to see how depressed you are i can't take a blood draw and check your bipolar Mm -hmm. but if you had a an infection i can draw your blood and petri dish it and see what medications work for that particular infection strain you have i can do a a lot of other things that we can see and it's a, a very objective and subjective and as opposed to mental health, it's only mostly subjective. We can't see that your brain is broken inside. Um, but that's the whole connection between your emotional and your psychic mental health and medical health. It's all, it all fits in together. It's all connected, yeah. So how you went back to the axes. So for yeah. people who don't know what the axes are, can mm-hmm. you explain what that was? The axes, axes ones would be where we would um, diagnose you with psychiatric conditions. The Axis Two labeled you with as a, having an intellectual developmental disability or a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And then the Axis Three uh, would be the medical conditions you may be also suffering from. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth would be the environmental stressors that contribute to all of those. And then the fifth was something we called the GAF, the Global Assessment of Functioning, which all together would kind of paint this picture for the, for the physician to help 
then kind of follow a, a standard of care. So it's all going to standard of care. When the recent revision, I think it, it was in 2014 or 15, they got rid of the labeling access one through five because mm-hmm. for some reason we just realized that medical and psychiatric <laughs> conditions yeah. are all hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, if you got a broken bone, if you're depressed, you're not going to heal as quickly as if you didn't have depression. Is that true, really? Yes, oh, wow. because it influences all of that in your body. So huh. uh, that's where that came from, you know, along with being able to have a standard of care. Uh, it, they don't tell you what to prescribe in that book, but it, it kind of leads to, it gives you a list of symptoms that correlate with the diagnosis. So it helps guide the, the um, diagnosing of a patient. So that we're not just going, well, he's acting out. He can't concentrate in school. It must be ADHD. And that's what a lot of lay people, and what I find a lot is a lot of teachers who will pull the parent aside and say, I think your child has ADHD, and I think that's inappropriate because they don't have the training. And I still see that. Mm -hmm. I see principals that refer for mental health. Now, it's okay to refer, but to say he probably has ADHD or it's mostly that when it's the school age. Mm-hmm. But I find that probably half the times that I see a patient that, quote unquote, probably has ADHD is suffering from a depression or an anxiety disorder related to the environmental stressors of their mom and dad getting divorced or a loss of a grandfather they were close to or any of those inf- impacts that, of course, if you're sad or you're worried about where your next meal is coming from or how's mommy doing or is she sick again? or where's my dad, or he's incarcerated, you're not going to concentrate in school. You're not going to think you're going to have trouble with those things, and that's where the manifestation physically, we see it. So yeah. it's, 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 it's useful that we get the referral, but uh, labeling somebody is not, not, not appropriate. But I yeah. see it. I've seen it. I do. I often see that as well, especially with younger children, mm-hmm. where uh, the mom comes in with maybe a paper or yeah. something, some information about ADHD, and is mm-hmm. like, "My teacher, my kid's teacher, gave this to me, and this is what we think he has." Yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, yeah. you know." But then we formally assess. We do screeners, assessments, things like that, and we kind of figure out, okay, yeah. either it's ADHD or ADD, or it could even be PTSD, exactly. anxiety, things like that. And so they're already coming with a preconceived notion of it's ADHD. And mm-hmm. then now I'm telling the parent, he's depressed. And right away they say, no, he's not. He's not depressed. Well, children don't manifest depression the same way adults do. Right. Children don't necessarily get sad and, and mope around, but they certainly have other behaviors. And that's the part that, that's challenging because then I've got to try to convince the parent that this is what he truly has. Of course, we're doing that out of experience and our education. And then trying to get them to start antidepressant therapy is a whole other story because of all the stigma they've heard. All the, that person was I knew was on Prozac, and you know they have horror stories about people, other folks taking medication. Right. But when it comes to AD, and then a lot of parents don't want to start ADHD medication, which I don't blame them. It's it's a, it's a strong medication. Yeah, yeah, it's a big decision. Can you talk a little bit about something that I think is floating around in either the news or mm-hmm. uh, public knowledge is that um, kids are over-medicated. Like, too many kids have ADHD yes. medication. They shouldn't. Why do you think that is? What's going on? Well, I think it's societal. I think part of it is is we want a quick fix, especially in this country. We want to fix something rather quickly mm-hmm. that has probably been building up for years that was ignored and now we need to address because the child has gotten out of hand. 
number one. So society wants a quick fix, take a pill and be, be better. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then I think the school system um, now able to diagnose with diagnosticians and have people in-house to be able to refer, they're catching more of these. I don't think there's more. I just think, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as ADHD. When I was growing up, there was no such thing as uh, ODD. And there really was. It's just that we, the schools and and the pressures of, of the environment didn't label it. They They just saw you as a kid who maybe had some issues, but it wasn't something that, you know, you tell a kid who truly has ADHD to sit down and not move, and the school system, that's the way they're structured. You need to sit down, you come in at this time, you can't move, because that's how they're... they're For like six hours, you right, can sit there and listen right, to me. <laughs> right, yeah. and so if we had schools that were more flexible, allowed kids to get up, didn't have such a rigorous and rigid schedule, I think you would see less of people wanting to label it as that, because that's all it takes, is yeah. for us to shape the way we see them as opposed to them having to conform to what we want or what society wants and i think right. that we would we would limit a lot of those medicating folks mm -hmm. or medicating kids because of these problems yeah, yeah so you're you're saying that maybe there's not more kids that all of a sudden were born right. with like this genetic defect and right. oh my god there's something in the water and the vaccinations it's more like there's awareness now Yes. And people understand it and can call it something. Correct. Instead of like... And then you put that person in a setting yeah. where it's more rigid and, and conforming, they're going to struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think back probably when I was growing up, I certainly remember kids that were hyper, mm -hmm. but the teacher wasn't trying to, you know, force them to not be hyper. Handcuff them to right. the chair or anything, right? right? I mean... Exactly. Figuratively. <laughs> but... <laughs> that I'm condoning mm -hmm. that but yeah it's true and I think I heard somewhere that like the school system hasn't changed the way people teach kids in like 200 years or something because it's yeah. been the same it's like you think of the little house on the prairie right. or something and there's like right. a schoolhouse with a school mother or whatever right with probably a male teacher because back then teachers yes. were male yes and kids would sit there yes. you know and it's like okay that worked for a while but we're like two centuries later yeah well remember back then uh, we were preparing the child to be an adult and an adult in the industrial age it was to get up clock in get on the line assembly line you can't deviate from the standard you've got to be this way and that's how they're preparing you subconsciously for your work mm -hmm. to work as an adult right. but people don't work like that no more no people are more flexible and autonomous people are working from home people and so i think people with true adhd thrive better when they're autonomous they can work from home and they can have their own schedules so mm -hmm. but the school was not set or built to train you because that's basically what they're doing they're training you mm -hmm. to sit still sit down follow commands punch in and punch out yeah At versus least, catering yeah. to the child's individual exactly. style of learning and the way they're probably exactly. going to work when they're an adult because exactly. yeah. not everybody learns the same way and no. if you're a visual learner you're not going to learn the same way as if you're an auditory learner. So right. you're not going to work the same way when you get a job. Mm -hmm. You're going to work the way you've known that works well for you. So yeah, whatever absolutely. you can adapt to. Yeah. Um, something else that I wanted to ask you um, is what are some of the more common medications that you prescribe 
for kids, let's say younger children, like eight, um, like five to 12 mm -hmm. or something? Um, well, I like, if it's like ADHD, then it'd be the non-stimulant medications for ADHD. Meaning when we're talking about stimula stimulating uh, psychotropics, we're talking about Ritalin, Adderall, um, which are all one molecule from methamphetamine. They're methamphetamine based. Mm. And so we're putting six-year-olds, seven-year-olds on methamphetamine. Uh, I, I choose not to do that first. I want to see if the non-stimulating agents work for mm -hmm. sure. Just like, you know, like a, the example of diabetics. We're going to start you on a diet first to see if that helps bring down your sugar. If that doesn't work, then we got to add metformin, which is the standard for when you first get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And we just progress with that as, as things get more acute. And it's the same thing with ADHD. I start with non, maybe it's behavioral. We send them to somebody like you and they work on the environment and behavioral problems and then if that doesn't work we can do a non-stimulating then we do the stimulating and then those that are not ADHD and they have depression then the one I like to use is Prozac is usually pretty good uh, and then even some psychotropics like Risperdal or Geodone which have a bad rap but can help limit a lot of the aggression a lot of the okay. anger issues but mm -hmm. to keep kids that long on medication until their teens or 20s is not my goal. I usually try to we challenge the patient after a few years of, of certain medication to try to wean them off to see if they can function without it. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to depend on especially Adderall, Ritalin, um, stimulating agents that, that are very addicting. Yeah. And then the kid now thinks that they need to have these stimulants in order to function. Mm -hmm. And it's really not necessary. So, you know, and some, some folks like that and some folks don't. I think the parents appreciate it more because they don't want their kids on medication, but the adults, they don't want to be told you can't take Adderall no more. They don't want to be told you don't need your Xanax anymore. But I think, you know, with the way the opioid crisis and the the um, Xanax crisis we have in this country, we need to start looking at that and yeah. start limiting uh, having to use those things. Yeah, because yeah. part of it you said is also societal, right? right? So like, if they're not able to function at a school or sit at home or sit at church very quietly mm -hmm. and still, I don't know if that's necessarily ADHD right. that needs medication or right. does the diagnosis even exist? That's like totally yeah. Okay, well we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> We're going off the deep end. Yeah. Okay, anyway, but the other question I have for you is, if somebody, um. Somebody says their pediatrician, who's mm. not necessarily trained in psychiatry, Correct. wants to give their children medication for whatever, yeah. depression, ADHD, anxiety. Is that something that is okay for parents to do? Or do you think... Yeah, so the, the family or the pediatrician or the provider, the primary care physician, um, it is absolutely appropriate for them to recommend and even initiate some kind of medication. Of mm -hmm. course, there should be an assessment. Uh, so that when they get to a, but there needs to be the follow-up. There needs to be a follow-up with a mental health practitioner where they can evaluate and determine whether that medication needs to continue or if we can change it or if there's something else we can do. Uh, it's certainly a, a, a benefit if a child already come in, comes in and they've been a month on antidepressant or a month on stimulant and the parent can come tell me, you know what, it's not working or it is working or it's helping. But then we should take over the management of that medication after that. But a lot of times I find that because of the lack of psychiatrists, because of the lack of providers, the primary care physician will manage it from their own experience because they've treated several thousand other or hundred other children with with similar things. So they're kind of it's kind of like a cookie cutter type of treatment. But you're not getting the fully appropriate if you're not following a psychiatrist or a 
a mental health provider. So right. a lot of times that happens. Or like a full assessment, right? Because it a could thorough be one. Mm-hmm. a thorough one, mm-hmm. right? Comprehensive mm-hmm. to make yeah. sure that you what catch if they everything. are getting triggered by trauma or they're getting right. anxious um, or something's happening at home. Yeah, that's why psychiatry is important. Um, that's really neat. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of how your practice is going to include all of yeah. that. And so like yeah. now, I mean, I would also, if you came in and you had a medical problem, I could for example I did blood work and I find that you have diabetes and you didn't know and you don't have a primary care physician I can start you on your diabetic medication I can start you on a diabetic plan and then make sure I refer you of course to an appropriate primary care physician and that's the way it's supposed to work but a lot of times we don't find that that happens or the follow through sometimes the patient or the parent doesn't want to or can't find somebody or they don't follow through and they just expect you to continue that care but although I'm trained in to do it both mm-hmm. uh, i don't want to overstep boundaries and, and not manage it because i'm not specialized in medical but we certainly can initiate it just like they can so yeah it's yeah. it's appropriate what are some of the things that you've heard from adults not excuses but i guess yeah. reasons strong reasons why they don't want to take medication or why they don't want to even come see you yeah a lot of it probably comes already they already have a previous history with other providers mm-hmm. they may have not followed the regimen appropriately or they didn't bother to come back and address the symptoms the side effects that some of these medications cause and they accept them as they're just what it gives me it makes me real sleepy i can't get up i'm groggy i can't think my mind is blocked those are our side effects but they, we can limit those by either assessing the, the strength in the dose we can lower the dose uh, but a lot of times patients don't come back and do that or they'll go somewhere else and then they'll change their medication or try something different. And so the, the patient's experience with several different medications, when somebody comes and says, I've done it all, I've tried it all, um, nothing's going to work, well, that you're already fighting an uphill battle because it's not possible that they've tried it all. Um, and uh, you probably hadn't been with somebody long enough to really address it well. Yeah. Of course, if you've been traumatized or you have a mental illness, it didn't come on overnight. It probably developed over some time, if it's years or months. And we're certainly not going to cure it in the first two, three months. Right. On top of that, medications take psychotropics two to three weeks for them to reach a full level in your body where I can say, yes, that is going to work, or no, it's not. Let's change it. Mm-hmm. And that's why the follow-ups are usually a month from the time of starting your medication so mm-hmm. we can evaluate and determine if that was the appropriate dose. Sometimes or most of the time it's starting doses, so I'm not expecting to see much difference, but at least I'll know their side effects. And if there's some benefit and improvement, then I can hire the dose. Um, But if I don't see that after a month and they're like, I'm the same, I'm not better or I'm worse, then I know I need to change it. mm -hmm. And I don't have to wait around for two or three months um, waiting for that medication to take, take hold. Because if you take it consistently for at least two to three weeks, then it's it's good enough to know whether it's working or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they just have to give it time. Yes. Um, so time th- would be one factor. I think uh, past experiences with other providers would be another. Mm-hmm. Um, the convenience, I think, is another thing. Not being able to see somebody, you know, if I get a flu or a cold, I can go tomorrow or today even to an urgent care clinic and get treated mm-hmm. for that. I can get an injection. I can get antibiotics and then go see my primary care. In mental health, you have a crisis or you're suicidal today, 
um, those thoughts may be gone tomorrow or they can intensify and it won't be till a month or three weeks before you can go see somebody so mm, by that time right or by that time you're no longer suicidal you're no longer as depressed mm -hmm. but what fixed it we don't know mm. and so they want to come in in three weeks and go well i'm feeling better now give me something for my suicidal thoughts or for my depression but it, why would i do that if you're not feeling that way anymore so oh, I think that's a lot I see of what it. you're saying. Yeah, we're treating after the fact. Yeah. Yeah, the body's real good at regulating and maintaining what we call homeostasis, and that's balancing you back to where your your chemicals are imbalanced mm -hmm. to make them back either through foods you eat, you know, chocolate has a lot of serotonin, um, foods your body breaks down into these neurochemicals that may be what you were deficient on, and now you're okay. Huh. And so I wouldn't want to start you on medication at that point. Yeah. You know, at the very beginning of my practicing um, as a therapist, I had an adolescent who was really depressed, mm -hmm. and they, um, he was a young adult, so he went to like the university medical uh -huh. place, um, not, not the hospital, but on campus, and um, they were like, well, we can give you antidepressants, mm -hmm. and then I was seeing him for maybe two months after that, something like that, and he still wasn't really getting better. Yeah. Um, and then I said to him, like, have you visited, like, your primary care doctor, like, to make sure that physically, like, yeah. you're okay? There's no medical condition yeah, contributing like a medical thing. to so your depression. Yeah. like, this guy had, like, a thyroid problem. There you go. And he got medication. Within, like, two weeks, he, he was, was, like... much better. Yeah, and I was, like, what? And first of all, okay, so that's really uncommon in men, I think, right? Or it's less thyroid common? Thyroid problems, yes, less common. Yeah, so, like, we didn't suspect that. Yeah. We just thought, oh, it looks like depression, walks like depression, must be depression. Yeah. But it was actually a thyroid thing. And so. that's why it's important mm -hmm. you follow up with a mental health provider that will draw your labs, will screen you for other medical conditions that look like depression. Right. That's one, thyroid problems, especially in women. Hypothyroidism looks, quacks like, looks like quacks like a duck it is a duck it can be depression but once we fix the medical condition the thyroid then then there's no more depression mm -hmm. and antidepressants wouldn't have been appropriate right or so it wouldn't have fixed that problem it wouldn't have fixed because it wasn't a lack of serotonin it was a, a thyroid problem yes yes yeah. that's true it's a good observation okay it's good yeah i think my last question for you is how does somebody like somebody's listening to this and they're relatively young and they're in college mm -hmm. and they want to pursue your career what would they have to do so like i said i'm nurse trained since i'm an advanced practice nurse um, i had to get my bachelor's in nursing first and then um, go on to a higher level of education get a master's as a mental health nurse practitioner um, and then you get sports certified, you take a test and examination just like therapists do to get certified to practice. And, and that's kind of the, the, the steps that I took that you have to do um, to become a, a prescribing uh, nurse practitioner. Therapists can do a lot of the same things. They can, they can uh, evaluate, assess, diagnose, but unfortunately they cannot prescribe, at least right. that I am aware of. Um, but also in that same token, I don't get the same training as a therapist I only get 600 hours in group, in individual, in family type therapies and modalities that I wouldn't even hold a candle to a therapist to. They got to go through, I guess, 2,000 hours of supervision, 3,000 3, yeah. now. And so I think I, a lot of the therapists are upset about that because, because I can do some of the therapy, but I wouldn't call myself an expert, just like I wouldn't call myself a psychiatrist. I can do psychotherapy, but I'm not going to claim that that's all I do or that I'm good at it at all. Yeah. But... 
But on the other hand, there are therapists that have been trained and went through their quote unquote 3,000 hours in requirements and somebody signed off on them and mm-hmm. they're kind of terrible. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I mean, that's true in every every profession. In every profession, agree, yeah. yeah. So next time a therapist gets mad at you, <laughs> just be like, well, technique is not the only thing right. that, you know, is important. Because I think you had, I remember at the shelter, like the kids liked you, mm-hmm. like they would like, hey, where's Jorge or yeah. whatever? And like, they would want to go talk to you. So you could build rapport really quickly. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that's the biggest thing with me is that I learned as I started my career and as I started kind of going into mental health is that I, I felt like I had a knack with communication, with with folks, just kind of for whatever reason they open up to me, they're able to feel comfortable with me. Yeah. And I don't know where that comes from, but it's certainly doing something right. And so I think that rapport helps me a lot when I'm evaluating a patient because yeah. then they're able to divulge things that maybe they wouldn't with somebody else exactly so exactly and you get a clearer picture which Absolutely. means better treatment exactly. all that stuff that's great is there anything else that you feel like you need to say to either the el paso community people who are listening to this podcast yeah. because they're interested in mental health sure you can say whatever you need um I think if you're googling symptoms if you're webmd looking for what you think you have and perhaps you feel like you have a mental health issue, then you probably already do. And you probably need to seek the appropriate care right away before it worsens. Um, Because the eventuality is that you may get better on your own, but before that, you may have suffered or encountered legal issues, uh, relationship issues, um, school issues, work issues, dysfunctionality that wasn't necessary. So if, if you're already there, if you're already doing that, then then come see somebody like us at Borderland Health, or uh, find somebody that'll that'll help you. There's there's plenty there's providers out there, but you're gonna have to really look for them, especially in this in this in the city. All right. But yeah, it's important. Do you want to give us your contact information, website, anything like yeah, that? Yeah. So we're we're barely in the construction phase, but um, you can reach me at jmedina at borderlandhealth.org. I can I'll certainly reply to you if anybody has questions regarding medications i mean i I can't diagnose or treat you but i can certainly maybe recommend or give you education regarding what you're on um look for us on facebook um uh, that should be coming up soon and um you know through you i think they can they can reach through you and try to find me if they need help and certainly hopefully i'll be back on and we can continue maybe these discussions or have some kind of uh open panel or have uh, people call in and maybe address some of the mental health concerns yeah absolutely so i will have all that stuff on the uh podbean website which is where my podcast is housed which is www.wondercounselor.podbean.com and on there i'll have a link um not a link but like a little clickable thing where you can uh contact jorge if you want to um the very first ask a therapist is going to be on Facebook Live wow. on June 18th. Good. I want to see kind of how that goes. Okay. And then if we get a pretty good audience, mm-hmm. then um, I definitely want to have you back on there so that we can have an ask the, what do we, what do we call it? Ask the provider. Ask, ask, ask the, the provider. Or ask yeah, the nurse practitioner. Nurse practitioner. Yeah. yeah, and then we can discuss stuff with other people, give general recommendations sure. and stuff. Yeah. But I appreciate you meeting me out sure. here on this hot El Paso day. <laughs> And people looking at us like, what are they doing? Yes. But I don't care. I don't have no shame. But <laughs> well, if they want an um, autograph, we'll give them one. We will, right? <laughs> we'll have paper. Just kidding. Um, but thank you so much yeah, for doing this again. Anytime. Thank you. And um, 
I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Just a side note, as we were recording outside on a cafe patio, it was 101 degrees. We were in the shade, so we didn't feel it too much, but I truly appreciate that Jorge decided to re-record his material. I hope you enjoyed all the information that you've gotten from this episode. And if again, if you have any questions, you can contact me on my Podbean page, which is www.wondercounselor.podbean.com. I also have an Instagram page, a Twitter page, and my Facebook page, Through the Eyes of a Therapist. So thanks for listening. Until next time.